Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. Today on the podcast, I'm doing an interview with Eric Alper. He's got a show on Sirius, he's been in the music industry for two decades plus, and he's actually helped the podcast quite a bit because it was through him that I was able to get interviews with people like Fred Penner, Biff Naked, Andy Kim, and the upcoming Tom Jackson, as well as Kim Mitchell. And that's because he's also involved in the promotion of artists far and wide across Canada from many different types of music. And he's actually a really great person to talk to. And if you're on Twitter, chances are you follow him because he's got a massive following on Twitter. And a lot of his posts are just fantastic through the day. So we talk about music, Canadian music, Twitter, so much more. So let's just get right to it. I'll get right to the first question. Uh, so your grandfather, he ran Grossman's Tavern. Um, so has music kind of always been kind of a family endeavor uh, for you? Yeah, you know, my, my whole family is a fan of music, but nobody, nobody can play. And that sound you hear is a sigh of relief from anybody that's ever heard us play an instrument or, or try to sing. Um, but, you know, my grandfather, when he started Grossman's Tavern in the 1940s, it was really about a sense of community. It was um, in just across the road from Kensington Market in Toronto. And if people don't know where that is, it's just a little bit of a hub of, of cultural identity. You had so many different ethnic groups and backgrounds um, all living within blocks of one another. Um, and, you know, you either open up a clothing store or a cafeteria. And my grandfather opened up a cafeteria, which led to the to the bar, which led to the alcohol license, which led to allowing Toronto to go to hell in a handbasket, mixing <laughs> alcohol and music together. But we, growing up at the bar and, and hanging out there as a teenager, um, it, it, was really, it was really that sense of community where my whole family worked there. Um, you know, my grandmother and my mom before, before she met my dad. And um, so, the bar represented a lot for for me personally because you know I got into music and I love music not just because of the actual magic that musicians can can create but I was fascinated with all the other things that were happening around music at the time you know what was happening politically what was happening um during the economy what was happening in race relations what was happening in everything to actually help these songs be created what was actually 
um, you know, influencing those people in order to create music. And Grossman's Tavern was certainly no exception with having Dixieland jazz bands and blues bands. And then in the 70s and 80s, having people like Jeff Healy and um, Rough Trade and Rush and Downchild Blues Band, all different styles of music coming from all different walks of life in order to create music. And that, to me, was the most exciting part of it. Um, so how did growing up around all that live music, how did that influence you at a young age uh, to later on get so involved in the music industry? Yeah, you know, I, I, saw, I saw the movie called American Hot Wax when I was eight. And it told the story of the Cleveland DJ Alan Freed, who coined the term rock and roll. And at the time, you know, I was eight. I was buying Donny Osmond and Bay City Rollers and, and not having a clue where any of this really comes from. But when I saw American Hot Wax, it, it had concert footage from the real life um, Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis up there on the screen. And, and it hit me squarely in my mind that that's what I wanted to do, not play, but somehow I wanted to get into whatever they were doing, whatever industry that was in. And, and I kind of liken it to some people being in trance forever, seeing Star Wars for the first time. They, these people were like my sci-fi heroes. They were, they were just superheroes to me. And so um, that bar allowed me to have one step away from where I wanted to go. And then that led to me getting a subscription to Billboard magazine for my birthday when I was 12. <laughs> and I loved reading the charts and reading the stories about these record labels like Motown and RCA and, and all of these amazing people that I, that I, I loved reading about. And uh, when I graduated from university, it was, you know, hitting the ground running, starting a record label, then a booking agent, then a publicity, then left everything else behind and just started to do publicity. And they've been doing that now for 25 years. So a large part of it was, I kind of had an inkling of people who were in that industry, but I had no idea how to even approach them. And I never did. I, I had, I really, it, it's not like that. I talked to my grandfather about the industry. It, it, we never really did. Um, and all those bands, I never really used the relationship that, that we all had with them to get help. I was terrified to. I didn't know anything. Nobody told me anything that I could actually ask another publicist how they did their job. But it seemed like fun. And, you know, the more I liked, the more I did it, the more I loved it. Uh, looking at your website uh, and you have your list of your past and present people you've worked with. Has there ever been a time where you're just kind of like, like, I can't believe that I'm, that I'm talking to this person or I'm, I'm working with oh, this every person. Day. Yeah. Oh my God. Every day. Oh yeah. I my my whole my whole life is like that you know when when i was working at Koch and entertainment one we were the largest distributor of of music in in the world and being in canada uh, i i was doing all the pr for all of their tour dates and releases so i got to hang out and meet and work with jerry lee lewis and ray charles and sinead o'connor and um um bob geldof and ringo Starr and all those people i bought their albums and Still to this day, when I work with somebody and I tell them when I'm working with a honeymoon suite or Sash Jordan or Biff Naked, I geek out. I have to. It's I'm not giving them like, hey, why did you choose to do this? It's almost like 
I, I can't believe we're all in the same place together. I would never tell them that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's times when I look at, at a lot of people and even when I talk to them um, for the Sirius XM show, I have to geek out in the beginning just to get it over and done with, you know, <laughs> just the amount of times I saw that artist or the amount of albums I bought or just to say thank you to to certain artists that that I still listen to after all of these years. Yeah, I'm and I'm really fortunate because even with the radio show, I only talk to people I love. And mm -hmm. so nobody really tells me what to do. And then with Caution, E1 and now here with my own company, nobody's really told me what to work and what not to work. It was always like a gut feeling. But yeah, I'm sure there were times when I worked Bob Geldof two years longer than anybody needed to, but I just loved <laughs> working with them. So why not? Mm -hmm. uh, when we look at kind of popular music, a lot of attention goes to America or especially uh, Britain. But when you look at Canadian music going all the way back to like Paul Anka and then to Neil Young and Rush and, you know, all the way up to Naked Ladies and beyond, is there anything that kind of makes Canadian music stand out that, that makes it kind of our special blend of maybe America and the, the UK? Yeah, you know, there, this country has been always very, very kind to those that can play live. I mean, we're a very big country with not a lot of people. We're the second largest mass in the, in the universe and with a population that fits in the tri-state area of New York, New Jersey, and Boston. I mean, we're smaller than California. So when I was growing up and up until maybe five or six years ago, you had to play live a lot in order to get great. I mean, pop music, even the pop music that I was growing up with of Brian Adams or Shania Twain or Lance Morissette, they, they did their time on the road, you know, and they can cut it live. Now, of course, you know, we're living in a time when, you know, you can just lip sync to a song on TikTok and, and get 34, 35 million followers. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the Canadian sound has always been, um, I, I think, one of definite of influence and, and the, the, the people that you're surrounded with. It's, it's why Drake can use different cultures and, and, and appropriate with ease all these different things happening around him because he grew up in such a multicultural, multi-environment as Toronto. Um, when you're Joni Mitchell or Neil Young or Randy Bachman in Manitoba, when no offense to people who live there, but there is nothing to do after, you know, six months of the year during the winter time. So I think that's why a lot of arts come from there because they, they're creating all the time when it's just too cold to go outside, really. And <laughs> they listen to what else is happening around them. A lot of folk, a lot of roots, a lot of country music, a lot of doo-wop bands, and they take that into their own music. Um, but certainly I think lyrical quality, I, I don't think we're any different as much as we like to think so. You know, you can look at the Tragically Hip and say, well, maybe that's why they didn't break in America. Mm -hmm. well, it's hard for somebody in Florida to understand Wheat Kings or 50 Mission Cap or Bob Cajun. But then on the other hand, you look at Oasis coming from the UK or the Manchester scene or, or Lou Reed from New York. Those are, those are very distinct places where their music has touched them and the environment has touched them, but we all seem to like it. This is just a really hard, I mean, 
I, I don't think it's mostly a musical thing. I think it's more of an industry thing more than anything else because living so close to America and getting so influenced by the UK music scene that it's hard for Canadians to break out. So I think sometimes we kind of want a sound and have our own distinct sound. But on the other hand, we kind of also don't because we need to mix in and sell a lot of records around the world. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Uh, how has the Canadian music scene or Canadian music in general changed since the 1990s when you were getting involved uh, initially with, uh, with music professionally? Well, yeah. Um, well, I don't have to fax anybody anymore, which is awesome. <laughs> um, I don't think anybody has a fax machine. I, 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 I think that the industry has changed so much. And I think the biggest change has been just the sheer level of competition that's out there now where when I first started, um, you know, not only was I faxing things, but I was also out seven nights a week, every single night, checking out bands, going to see bands, talking to the media, talking to other industry people. It was a real person to person, face to face, communications thing, your contacts were everything. Now that we all have access to anybody in the world through email, and now thanks to Spotify and Tidal and iTunes and Apple and Google Music and whatever else it is, um, when a new band comes out, your competition isn't another band from Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal in your hometown. Your competition is Bruce Springsteen. Your competition are the Beatles because we're all after the same eyes and ears as everybody else that's out there. And, you know, while definitely there's been a, a strong higher increase of music that's being produced due to COVID and, and isolation, so has everybody else. So I, I think that's the biggest change is that the audience and the readers and the, the people who consume music and blogs and even media in general, um, it's moving so fast simply because we just don't have that time to sit and, and sink in pop culture moments that are super important. You know, when you and I, you know, I, I know we're kind of around both the same age, we're both around 25 years of age. So um, when, there's never gonna be another time in our history where we're gonna have a Michael Jackson's thriller being number one for a year, or born in the USA, or Madonna's like a virgin, or Nirvana's Nevermind. We're not all watching and listening to the same five things over and over again when we have every single song that's ever recorded in history available at our fingertips. So the sheer amount of music and entertainment and information at our fingertips is absolutely not just, the, I think, the biggest thing to happen in the music industry, but I think, I think it might be the biggest thing that's ever happened to human beings. And we're just still learning how to process it and not very well. Yeah. Uh, you, you kind of an extension to that, but back in 1995, like you said, you're faxing people, you're on the road a lot. How has the promotion of artists changed over the years to the point now where social media is, is so dominant? 
Yeah, you, you know, it, it's interesting where if, if I do PR for older artists, maybe people that are in folk music or blues music or roots or classical or jazz, um, I'm not saying that everybody has a struggle, but definitely even understanding how Facebook can work for artists in terms of any brand or any business is still is still cause for confusion with some people because we've grown up with Facebook, but now that there's a whole generation of people who who use social media only for their consumption of, of arts and music, they have to do that and they have to do that well. Um, they don't just have to write the greatest song in the world or at least strive to do that. They also have to be brilliant marketing people. They have to know their audience more and more so they can dig deep and target those people in order to get their music when they're promoting it on social media. Um, and then when Twitter comes along and it becomes a cesspool of hate and anger and negativity sometimes, it kind of scares them off when social media for social good has always been a huge part of who I am and what I do and what my whole family does. And then Instagram comes along and that's a whole learning curve. So I think part of it is that, you know, the generation that grows up becoming a musician always finds that social media outlet better than anybody else and can work around it and leaves everything else behind. So if you're a folk artist, chances are you probably got on Facebook to promote your music, maybe on Twitter, maybe not so much on Instagram. These up and coming artists that are, you know, 15 years of age to 25 years of age, they're not on Facebook. They might be on Twitter, definitely on Instagram, absolutely on TikTok. So part of it is like the, you have to figure out not only who you are as an artist, but you have to now figure out who your audience is because that's going to cost you money in the long run. Absolutely. Uh, so speaking of social media, you have a huge following, uh, especially on Twitter. So, and you, it's not just you uh, putting out, you know, people that you're managing or anything like that, but you're putting out facts, you're putting out pictures. How much is it your day is like involved in, in keeping that content going out and growing that already huge following? Oh, it's an embarrassing number, Craig. It, it's 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 roughly, I'd say, about an hour and a half to two hours every day. It's the first thing I do as soon as I wake up in the morning is, um, is set up my whole day and then just let it run all day, or else really I wouldn't get any work done. The only time when I'm really live posting is if you know somebody passes away or there's big breaking news. But I'm I'm on there checking messages. I want to kind of see what people are writing about. Um, and, and quite frankly, I mean, I'm really here for my own entertainment. I'm tweeting the exact same things as, and the exact same methods as I did when I had zero followers is when I have 700,000 now. I, when I ask a question, it's really because I want to know. It's not designed for anything other than my sheer entertainment. Mm -hmm. um, so a, a, a large part of my life is based on social media. And one thing I realized really quickly is nobody's really interested in all of the artists that I work with. But by allowing me to post and tweet and, and, and talk about other artists, it allows me to have an audience so that when I do write about or post about the artists that I am working with, it kind of gives them a little bit of a, of a leg up. But that wasn't by design whatsoever. It was just mostly so that my wife wouldn't have to listen to me <laughs> about all my fun facts that I have in my head, you know? So it's like, oh, just go post that on Twitter. Nobody cares, you know? So yeah. that, that's really what it was all about. Um, tell me a bit about your your serious uh, your radio show. 
Uh, it's a one-hour talk show called At That Eric Alper. So if Twitter ever goes down, I'm screwed because um, <laughs> I'm going to have to come up with another title. But yeah, it's a one-hour talk show just talking um, just like you and I are, just a, with musicians that I love. Um, this weekend, I've got Jim, uh, Slim Jim Phantom from the Stray Cats, and I talked to um, John Anderson from Yes and Kurt Smith of Tears for Fears and just people that I've long admired. And it's a chance for me to not go too inside baseball too much. I don't dig deep into how they create the sounds. I think that's for other people that are more, way more knowledgeable about <laughs> guitar tones and pedals. And I, I can't, I have no idea about any of that stuff, but I'm always kind of fascinated with not only how they got started, but I think more importantly, kind of what happens when you start to sell 5 million albums? That's the stuff that interests me. Like, where does your mind start to click that you can't go out anymore? Like, what's that like? You know, what are you spending your money on? How much pressure is it when all of your dreams are achieved and yet it makes you miserable? Because everybody kind of wants to know how they got their start. And it's so different for everybody else. But I, I kind of want to know what it's like when you're traveling the world because because there's no rule book nobody mm -hmm. ever tells you that stuff you know and that's the real fun part for me is like how did you cope with all of that <laughs> but you know it, it's really just you know it's really just shooting the breeze with with people and and pretty light for me to do it yeah i had a lot of fun doing it nice uh and i guess uh how with covid kind of dominating everything right now uh, how has COVID shown how important arts are, like music, whatever it might be? Uh, and is that something that we'll see continue afterwards uh, once, you know, vaccine comes along and all of that? Um, but has it shown the importance of art in our life as we, you know, deal with all of this often stuck at home? What's this COVID everybody keeps talking about? I mean, <laughs> I don't go out anyway, so I have no idea. Um, you know, you you realize what a giant introvert you are when there's a world pandemic and your whole life really doesn't change all that much. Um, I, look, the, the, the sheer amount of music that's being created is astounding. And it's, and it, for the most part, it's all good. It's all brilliant stuff. Um, you, when we all got called back in around March and April, I went outside, I had a scream for about, four seconds and I went back inside and I emailed everybody <laughs> and I said, I'm still going to be here. I'm still going to be working. Don't know what your plans are, but I don't have anything else to do. I, I don't know what else to do anyway. I've never done anything else. I can't suddenly pick up a hobby like cooking. I suck <laughs> at it. I know who I am. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I, a, lar a large part of it was just continuing to work with the artists. All of them ramped up their release schedule. All of them started being more creative. So an artist that had six songs on their EP and were planning on making two videos for the EP are now making five videos for the EP or that they're not even putting out a song unless they know for sure that they can make a video for it. I think right now, the only reason why people are making albums or EPs is just to really qualify for for the Juno Awards or Grammys, because they, they're still in that album mode of you have to have an album in order to qualify. I think for the most part, everybody is just single by single by single. But certainly we've seen a huge increase in the amount of, of, of time that people are spending, not only on Netflix or YouTube and Spotify and the like. Um, but I think um, 
uh, just the sheer amount of music that's being created right now um, is, is, is astronomical. I think, mm-hmm. you know, when you find out that, that Spotify has gone from t- uploading 22,000 songs a day and about 44,000 songs on New Music Friday pre-COVID to over 50,000 songs a day and over 120,000 songs on Friday, you know that there's a lot of music out there. And like everything else, most of it isn't really good, but that's just percentage. That's what mm-hmm. happens when you can record something in your bedroom and upload it. There's really no, um, there's really no quality control sometimes. And that's okay. Even the Beatles first hundred songs they wrote, I'm sure stunk. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, it's a matter of keep trying and keep working at mm-hmm. it. So for me, nothing really changed. I, I know I was one of the very few publicists in North America to keep going throughout all of this. Um, simply because the artists were going through all of it. I didn't force them to do anything that they didn't want to do. But now the sheer amount of press releases I'm getting from other publicists around the world um, is right up there at the biggest peak I've ever seen. Um, and that's after a good a good month, six week lull and stuff happening. So yeah, I think things are kind of back to normal without of course having any live shows for the mm-hmm. foreseeable future. And that may not even happen until I think at least mid-summer 2021 at the earliest. Absolutely. Uh, and then the last question. So if people want to, uh, they want to listen to your show, if they want to follow you on Twitter or anywhere else or get in touch with you, uh, what exactly do they do? Yeah, the best thing they, they can do is go to the website at that, uh, that ericalper.com or follow me on Twitter at that ericalper. And I have all the information on the SiriusXM show and the website and everything else that's kind of burning through my mind at that time. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Eric Alper, and if you did, please leave a rating and review. You can reach me at craig at canadaehx.ca. You can visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history, as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.ca. And, of course, you can support the podcast on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have. Aaron O'Hara, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., Vic Hedges, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, Spencer M., and Iris Gray. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.